And we welcome you to the morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. I've been searching through the morning show archives for past interviews that are maybe especially interesting or illuminating or entertaining that would be good to listen to again as we hunker down together through the COVID-19 crisis. Today's interview dates all the way back to 2005 and is a marvelous celebration of bird watching. I hope you'll enjoy it. You may remember recently on the morning show when as part of our monthly visit from the United Environmental Council, we had two people with us, Helen Pugh and a good friend of hers, who are both uh, avid bird watchers. And uh, in the wake of that recent interview, I am so happy now to be able to speak for the next few minutes with the author of a superb book about bird watching in some respects taken to the extreme. The author in question is Dan Capel, and he's written a book called To See Every Bird on Earth, A Father, a Son, and a Lifelong uh, Obsession. The book is primarily about Dan Capel's father, Richard Capel, uh, a uh, fervent birder for uh, much of his life. And uh, it's also a book about why this obsession uh, took over his life as it did. And uh, set against the, kind of the emotional context of, of some of the successes and disappointments that were part of Richard Capel's uh, life. And over the course of 25 years, Richard Capel uh, was able to observe more than 7,000 different species of birds across the world. And uh, that puts him in very rare company indeed. We will learn a great deal about this and more uh, from author Dan Capel. And uh, his wonderful, fascinating book is published by Plume. Dan Capel, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Well, thank you so much, and thanks for the uh, best intro I've ever had. I appreciate that. <laughs> well, you're very welcome. I Actually, for as good an introduction as you say that was, I, I neglected to really say very much about the rest of your career as a writer. You're really quite well known for uh, writing uh, on, on matters related to nature and the out-of-doors and adventure writing and, and, and so on. Uh, tell us a little bit about when and how your writing career began. Uh, well, um, I began uh, in, in a very sort of traditional romantic sense as a copy boy on the New York Post. Um, I, was, I grew up in New York City, and I was very fascinated with uh, newspapering. Um, but I found it uh, after college, uh, kind of messed around a little bit like a lot of people and uh, got a job on a business magazine, but finally found it difficult to reconcile uh, going to an office every day and wearing a suit and tie with my love of the outdoors. And... Uh, in the early 90s, decided to go freelance and see if I could make it as uh, someone who wrote about uh, interesting places to go and things to do, and I've been lucky enough to be able to do that. I have to ask you quickly about two things in your resume. First of all, what of your writing has appeared in Martha Stewart uh, magazine? Yeah, that's right. Um, well, you know, a lot of magazines do uh, travel stories. Um, that has been a big market for travel writers is not so these days is not so much to write for the travel magazines as to write for the travel section of a traditional magazine and it worked the usual way I had a friend who worked on Martha Stewart and uh, asked me if I'd do a couple of travel stories for them so I did one about bike touring and another about um, different kinds of trees you can see during uh, the autumn time in, in 
different parts of the country. Very good. I also have to ask you about your work on one of my favorite television programs, Star Trek The Next Generation. That somehow doesn't line up all that neatly with uh, the rest of your resume. Tell us how uh, you have managed to, to do that as well. Uh, well, um, I guess it doesn't line up with the stuff on my resume unless uh, I haven't put on my resume that as a teenager I had a Mr. Spock ears and a Star Trek uniform and have been a Trekkie pretty much all my life. I don't know if I should admit that, but but um, I, I was very lucky in the early 90s to have a friend who had gotten a job as a staff writer on Star Trek, and he knew that I liked Star Trek and had an interest, and he asked me to if I wanted to come into the studio um, and, and pitch some stories. And I lived in Los Angeles, and I've never really been involved in the movie industry or had an interest in it, but I couldn't pass that up, and uh, I went in and pitched a few stories to them, and uh, I was really lucky again. They liked one and asked me to write a script, and it was one of the most interesting and fun experiences of my life. Uh, and, uh, you know, certainly um, an example of turning down an offer for a great financial career if uh, I had kept doing that, but uh, I wanted to do what I wanted to do, and so writing for Star Trek was just a one-time thing. It was really thrilling, though, and I was really happy about it. Well, when the mic uh, is turned off, uh, I will have to find out uh, what episode I should be seeking out to... Uh, to view your work, because I will very much want to do that. But let's get to the matter of this book again called To See Every Bird on Earth. First of all, uh, I mean, I have read the book. I hope that will be evident through the course of the the interview. But I want to make certain, is your father still alive? Yes, and in fact, uh, I wanted to mention that uh, I live in Los Angeles, but we're doing this interview from his house on eastern Long Island. I'm, I'm here for a visit. I'm actually sitting in his map room, and I'm looking at a huge wall-sized map of the world, um, which is covered with an uncountable number of different colored pushpins, um, representing places he's seen birds, places he needs to see birds. Uh, I don't even know what some of the different colors represent, but um, I couldn't, it would take the entire 30 minutes to count the number of pushpins, if, if that. Hmm. Well, you, of course, lived this story to some extent with your father, uh, but tell us a little bit about the experience of when you first began seriously writing about your father. And, of course, some of those early efforts, to some extent, were a precursor to this extensive book. Your, your, the preface of the book, or, or the, I think it's actually in the acknowledgments where you mention a couple of these uh, first occasions where you wrote about your father and his obsession with birds. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, again, I've been lucky enough. I had a, um, a friend of mine, who, uh, a colleague, who had been editor of a bicycle magazine I worked for, and she went on to become the editor of Audubon magazine. And she called me early on and asked me if I would write some stories that were more birding adventures. So the first one I wrote was about a birder in Ecuador who had discovered a new species of a bird called an ant pitta. I had, I had no clue what an ant pitta was because I'm not that interested in birds. So my father turned into the fact checker on the story pretty much, and he was a pretty rigorous and brutal fact checker, made sure I got everything right. Um, and uh, that was one of the first ones I did. I did a couple more, and um, ultimately I mentioned to my editor, Audubon, that he was on his way to seeing his 7,000th bird. And this is a, a milestone, as you, as you mentioned. Uh, only a few people have seen more than 7,000, and she said, well, you need to go along and write a story about that. And that feature came out about five years ago, and it was from that that I thought it would be interesting to write a, a book because I began to speak to some of the other uh, big listers who are people who've seen more than 7,000 birds, and I found every one of them 
as interesting and eccentric as my father and realize this is a subculture that I need to write about. Hmm. And I wonder uh, specifically about this book then, you know, in which you tell your father's story and, and how it intersected with your own life story uh, so comprehensively and so honestly. Tell us a little bit about what precipitated the writing of this book and uh, sort of your feelings going into this project and, and how your father also uh, greeted the, this, uh, this project. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, my parents were both very much um, products of the turbulent 60s. Uh, I, grew, I was born in 1962, and um, like a lot of families, we, we split up uh, during the early 70s during that wave of divorces and turmoil. And um, at that point, uh, although I saw a lot of my father, um, it was pretty much birding. Um, we went to see birds with him, and uh, at the same time, at home with my mom, things were pretty chaotic, and I, I came to see these weekends as a sort of oasis. Um, but ironically, I think as he grew older, um, the, the obsession with birding uh, made that less of an oasis and removed him more and more from my brother and me um, in, emotionally. And so by the time I was in college, uh, he was pretty much off birding all the time. And, and like a lot of kids who come from difficult family backgrounds and a lot of kids in general who are just sort of starting their lives um, and their careers, I, I, I felt like I needed some advice, some closeness, and I couldn't really get that. And uh, it, it started a period where I really was pretty resentful and, and not appreciative, I guess, of, of what he was doing. It just seemed crazy to me, and it, it seemed selfish. Um, and uh, as, as I sort of floundered around, that, that increased. And as I sort of stopped floundering and figured out my own way, um, I felt that the emotional closeness between him and I was not there, but I, I, I wasn't so sort of resentful of it. I, I just didn't understand what he was doing or why. Uh, and uh, in the early 90s, I started visiting him, and we'd go on a few bird trips, and uh, one of my friends from college had become a biologist, and he thought my dad was kind of a hero for, for doing this, and he impressed upon me how difficult it was. And uh, I began to see him in a different light, and this was around the time I was sort of becoming an outdoors nature writer myself, and I be began to realize how difficult the trips he was doing were and how, how much work and bravery and sort of gumption it took to do this. And so I began to appreciate it more, and, and that led to, uh, I, w I would call it a, a reconciliation um, and an and appreciation. And, and one of the things I say in the book is that I realized that to get to my father, I had to go through birds. Um, that, was, that was the only way. And I realized when I wrote the book that if it was going to be personal, um, if it was not going to be just sort of a series of funny anecdotes about strange people who watch birds, I would have to look at the context, try and understand his obsession. Hmm. And uh, to me, I, 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 I realized that it was because he had been disappointed in marriage, disappointed in his career somewhat, um, frustrated as a child because he really wanted to be an ornithologist, and his parents were very old world and wouldn't allow that. And it was sort of the expression of trying to compact what might have been a lifetime of this into 20 or 30 years. And it gave him a goal, and, and it gave him something in a way to be well-known for. And uh, the obsession was fascinating, and we had to talk candidly about why that was. And I have to say, he was really um, a champ for, a, for a, a 
man who doesn't really talk a lot about personal issues, um, I was able to draw him out a lot in a, about a year of very difficult um, interviews that were very emotional, very sort of uh, cathartic. Um, I have over, I'd say, 200 single-space pages of interview transcripts with him that, that the book came out of. And it was quite an experience and, and not very easy, personally. Wow. Well, and it's so ironic because you, you talk about how it was through birds that you could connect with your father. I mean, even at the time, you felt like that was, at least at given points in time, that was the avenue by which you could connect. And, of course, now you connected with him very powerfully in this project, uh, which was chiefly about his, his, his birding. But it's so interesting because at one point uh, uh, elsewhere, as you describe what this was like at the time, you say the, the, some of these excursions with your father it didn't seem like a father-son activity. Every time Dad looked through his binoculars, he seemed to be looking away from me. So at the yeah. time, this often felt like something which took your father away from you. And yet now you see birding in, in a very different sort of way. I mean, it has also been something else, a point of connection for you. Yeah, that's right. And uh, that, that particular line you quoted... Uh, one of the reviewers said that that was the most self-pitying line he'd ever read in his life. Um, so I, <laughs> I, disagree, I disagree with that. Um, but, but um, you know, that line was especially written about um, my childhood and, and teenage years when, when uh, you know, I mean, many families are not lucky enough to have the means to go to Disneyland. Uh, we had the means, but our trips were always birding. And they were not very generous. Uh, his His sort of way of birding was a way of sort of retreating um, into him, himself and his, his desires. So it was, not, it was not a father-son activity the way a father might teach his son to fish might be. Um, I, my brother and I remember both, and we look at it kind of comically now, just standing around for hours <laughs> waiting <laughs> for birds. Um, and, you know, we weren't even tall enough to uh, reach the telescope um, at that point. But, but I, I wrote, you know, the, the, the hardback of the book came out just before Father's Day last year, and so I did a lot of um, discussions with people about, you know, how to, how to reach a distant parent or something like that. And, you know, I wouldn't presume to give advice to other people, but I realized that I, it was up to me to find a way to reach him, and that's not necessarily what we always want. You know, we would like the people who we love, who we can't reach, to to come halfway to us at least, but I knew that wasn't going to happen. Um, I'd been waiting for that to happen uh, my, my whole life, and, and so I decided that uh, he was worth it, and it was worth finding out uh, about him and, and going all the way to him, and uh, it was worth it. Hmm. As you began this book and these conversations, did your father really know that this book was going to be so much, I don't know, psychology? I mean, that, that you would end up writing so extensively about, about him and his emotional life and about his relationship with you and with your mother and so on. I mean, going in, was he aware that this project was going to take you and him where it did? Uh, no, he definitely wasn't aware. Um, I should uh, think he would have gone uh, running, screaming in the other direction if he'd known. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny. Um, when I was doing these interviews with him and we were talking very candidly, although not analytically, we were talking about events and, 
you know, I suppose, I, I, you know, if you look at those questions, he would, you, you would clearly see that I was looking for motivations and, and psychology, but there were many times in the interviews where he said, I hope you don't print this, and I would always say the same thing to him, and I said, if you don't want me to print it, don't say it, because everything we say is, is going to be fair game, and he understood that, and he, he, he liked it. I mean, I, I think, although I wouldn't say it was consciously cathartic for him, I think it helped him to, to feel better about himself and, and his, his life to, to tell his story. Um, hmm. And when the book came out, there were, there were things that he, he did say he wished that he hadn't put had out there in public, but, but to his credit, he, he said, it's my book, and he was happy, and he was really proud of the book. He came came to my reading out in his community, and all his friends were there, and I think a lot of it was validated by the fact that all his friends who read the book really loved it and, and said how, how much, how real it was, and, and so I, I think he, he ultimately felt like it was good to get his story out hmm. and, and have his story interpreted. Right, and you know, it's interesting, we read this book, we read this story, and there are many points in time when we we are sort of sad for you and frustrated on your behalf. And yet we read this book and we do not dislike your father. I mean, uh, for as honest and unvarnished an account as this is, uh, it is ultimately a, a, a story which makes him a, a very compelling and ultimately very sympathetic person that we want to know better and better. And that's one of the reasons we keep turning the pages. Well, thank you. I mean, I, I, I would hope that's the case. And uh, because I, I feel that he is a sympathetic person, and I, I feel like uh, one of the things that people respond to, even though they think it's a little crazy to spend your whole life and all that money and all that time isolated from the traditional things that we love and care about and do this thing, I think a lot of people, including me, are, you know, admire the fact that this is a person who found what he was meant to do. And, and that he did it out of a, out of a vulnerable place, even if he wasn't aware of that vulnerability. Hmm. Yeah, you say I, he, he buried the sadness of his disappointments by watching birds, by tending his logbooks and checklists, the way a gardener nurtures his blooms. I'm reminded of, a, of an author I interviewed whose mother had uh, just barely escaped Germany uh, in the 1930s, just barely escaped with her life to uh, resettle uh, here in the United States. And she talked about how in the wake of that calamitous uh, un unhappiness of her childhood, I mean, it was no childhood, uh, that her mother obsessed with things around the house like wax buildup on the floors and, 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 and being incredibly meticulous about the way she kept house was a way for her to exert control in her life, uh, in, a, in a life that in which she had experienced so little control uh, growing up. And I thought that was kind of interesting. Your, your story, and as you talk about your dad, reminds me of, of that in, in, in some ways. Not that that kind of calamity befell him, but in some sense, his compulsion to uh, list birds, and, and for that matter, books he's read, and uh, the cheeses he's sampled. I mean, it seems like that's also a way for your father to bring order and a sense of control uh, into a life which also held some unhappiness for him. Yeah, I agree with that. And, uh, I mean, that description you gave of, of the mother, um, that's my grandmother um, to, to a T. And, you know, it occurs to me right now that those, those things are passed on also. 
and and so it is a way to sort of bring order in a place where where there's disorder or even in, in a place where there may be an emotional vacuum um, because to a, a child and my father was began this obsession as a child um, even an emotional vacuum must feel like disorder in a lot of ways hmm. We're speaking with Dan Capel about his book called To See Every Bird on Earth, A Father, a Son, and a Lifelong Obsession. One of the things I think we should probably uh, clarify for our listeners is that there are uh, bird watchers and uh, or birders, and then there are listers. Tell us sort of that line which gets crossed when a birder becomes a lister. Well, I think, I mean, a lot of birders keep a list, but I wouldn't call them listers. And, and the reason for that is a lister, as the name implies, there's, there's no bird in that name. It's, uh, it's, it's more about the list than the bird. And listers do not appear out of nowhere. Birders become listers, and then they become big listers. And it's a winnowing process. There are very few big listers, which are people who've seen over 7,000. There's actually very few people who've seen over 5,000. Once you get to the point where you are going off the beaten track and you're not taking birding trips either nationally or internationally um, on a sort of vacation basis, when you're doing it for the birds and for the list, you've become a lister. And once you become a lister, you are, you are at the gateway to true obsession. And you know, if, if you have the time, the financial wherewithal, and the personality, you can become a big lister. And that requires an all-consuming uh, method. You, you can't really think about anything but birds if you really want to get those high numbers. Hmm. You know, your father, at some point, you quote him as saying that, that this, uh, this need he had to uh, uh, list birds, uh, he called it an addiction. And I'm not sure how carefully he chose that term versus obsession or compulsion or whatever the terms might be. But if you thought very much about that, and about how appropriate it is for him to, to call this an addiction. Would you call it that as well? I would, and, and I, I, you know, I, I should point out that um, during my dad's career as a doctor in the 1970s, he actually worked in a clinic to help people get off heroin, um, and he lectured about that, so he knows what an addiction is. Um, it was his job for a long time to know that, and I think uh, he's right. Um, and I think an addiction... The difference between an addiction and an obsession is probably that it's more difficult to kick an addiction. It might hurt more. Um, it's, it's, it's an obsession with, with a sort of, I, I, I would even call it an endorphin component where you actually feel great when you're getting what it is you're addicted to and you become addicted to that feeling rather than to the object that, that you're obsessing about. Uh, that's what I think the difference would be. Hmm. We've already talked about the difference between birders and listers and big listers. Uh, you make another interesting distinction, which is, of course, very related. Um, and you say one sign of amateur birding's emergence was a division between those who saw it as a sport and those who preferred to view it as a gentle hobby. And that distinction probably really means something as well, that difference between hobby and sport. Yeah, I mean, one of my friends read my book, and she said, it's a hobby and an obsession. You should come up with a new word, a hobsession. But, um, <laughs> but it's more than that. Um, it is a sport, and there are people very competitive. Um, 
it, I would say it involves more physical activity than, than golf, uh, to a great extent, apologies to your listeners who, who play golf, but it involves travel to remote places um, that can be dangerous. Uh, I've, I know of birders who've been shipwrecked. I know of one who was uh, eaten by a lion. So, so it's uh, it's 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 not um, you know this genteel thing, and and I think it's a sport because people compete with each other and and try to win and and try to use their both physical and mental abilities to outthink and out-strategize those they're going up against. Mm. You say counting birds is an assertive way for the average person to gain mastery over nature. And I suppose the the competitive uh, facet of it uh, and the fact that, that one is reaching for a very impressive goal is, is also something that maybe in the lives of certain people who otherwise are not going to achieve that, for instance, out on a football field or something, it is... It is a different sort of field of competition or, or even battle uh, where they can bring all of their abilities and know-how to bear. Yeah, that's right. And I think there's two reasons for that. I mean, one is that birds are, are you know, universally appealing to people. We've always been interested in them. The way we identify them by sight and sound is, is something we're all familiar with. We've all, we all know what a you know, robin's red breast looks like. We all know what different bird songs sound like. But I think the other thing is that birds are unique in that there's just enough of them to cover a lifetime of, of, of pursuit. Um, and, and there's just enough of them to learn enough that you can do it. And there's about 9,500 bird species. Compare that to butterflies. There's hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands of, of different kinds of insects you could watch. So you can't really put that in a book and, and check it off. Uh, if you want to watch rhinos, well, there's only five different kinds of rhinos. Your, your chase is over pretty quick. Hmm. So I think the number of birds really, really lends itself to that sort of 20 to 30-year pursuit that, that becoming a big lister takes. And, uh, and uh, it's, it's, a, it's a sort of compact, perfect size for that kind of competition. We're speaking with Dan Capel about his book, To See Every Bird on Earth. Uh, there are organizations, of course, and, and they have rules about how this is uh, to be done, which uh, I think we should talk about. First, though, let's talk about something which you call, I think, yard listing. And that is when somebody begins this pursuit in, in probably the simplest sort of, of fashion, and that is to, to start making a list of the birds one sees in one's own yard. Uh, this is a fascinating thing, and one of the things you say that's fascinating, it's especially interesting how much people seem to want to share these sorts of lists with the rest of the world. Talk about that. Yeah, I, and I think that's really interesting because um, yard listing is something that, uh, you know, if I get 300 birds in my yard and I live in um, Galveston, Texas, and you get 60 and you live in, um, you know, Augusta, Maine, well, it's hard to say which of those is a is a more formidable achievement. So there's really no yardstick. To, sorry for the pun, but it depends on habitat. Um, and I should point out, I mentioned that I'm at my dad's house, um, and he just saw his 199th yardless bird a couple of weeks ago, a rough-legged hawk. Now he's been talking for as long as I've been coming to visit him, which is close to 40 years, about 200 being his maximum, and he is waiting for 200. So when I ask him, what did he do yesterday? He says, 
I sat out in the yard. I waited for number 200. He also told me once that he was going to sell his house and move to Florida when he got 200, expecting that he would never get to 200. Hmm. So, so the yard listing is a way of sort of having a personal goal, you know, in your own personal space. It doesn't require travel. It just requires sitting out in your yard and, and enjoying the weather and and looking. And right. Looking. Well, and, and, and just to clarify what you were saying uh, a moment ago, I mean, not only can you not compare a yard in Maine with a yard in Texas, but even in Galveston, Texas, each and every yard is unique in its size and exactly where it is and so on. So, so again, in, in a sense, there's kind of a meaninglessness about yeah. I've seen so many birds in my yard versus your yard, and yet you talk about uh, yard listers who who want to share their lists on the internet and in other <laughs> forums. Uh, it, it it just it kind of interesting the way they are drawn in and how everybody kind of gets drawn into this same sort of interesting pursuit. Yeah, I mean it's it's funny um, that that someone would brag about a, a, a yard list, which is, as you point out, is a completely sort of random, arbitrary thing based on, you know, all sorts of things, geography. Uh, but maybe it's about the same thing. I, I hate to say it as people saying, my house is bigger than yours. You know, and maybe it's a form of conspicuous <laughs> consumption of, of birds. I, I, I don't really know. You also say that yard listing ages with us because it slows with time. I think that's so interesting, too, that, of course, you're going to see a lot of the birds which frequent your yard, and then once you've seen them, it may be a long, long wait before that list gets much longer. Right. I mean, I think my dad got to 150 um, within a couple of years, and, and now uh, he's, he's seeing you know, maybe three in a decade. And so it becomes, uh, you know, in some sense, it becomes a more obsessional, single-minded pursuit I don't think a lot of people would really wait every day for a bird that might take three or four years to see um, when you get into those high numbers. On the other hand, I think it is a real pleasure to, to sort of sit out there and, and, and watch the time pass um, and, and, and look who's coming to visit. It's, it's exciting when a, when a new bird comes over your yard, one that you didn't expect or one that, that you did expect and waited for for a long time. It's a really satisfying feeling. Hmm. Well, of course, your father, the whole point of your book is that your father's done far more than sit, in, uh, sit on the patio and, and wait for birds to come to him. Your father has been going to the birds, and, uh, and in, in, a, in a way that has, has been really, truly extraordinary and which has landed him in, in very rare company as one of the most impressive big listers um, in, in history. Let's talk first about some of the rules which govern this kind of competitive bird watching, if we want to call it that. Uh, some of those stipulations uh, from whatever the ABA is, I can't remember. Oh, yes, the American Birding Association. I mean, how is this carried out to, uh, to keep these sorts of impressive lists truly authentic and legitimate? Yeah, I mean, then this is the number one question I'm always asked: is how how do you make sure that people are are telling the truth? Um, and I, I always call it an honor system with teeth. Uh, one of the things it is fundamentally an honor system. However, you when you're at that level, your competitors are checking you, and in fact, a lot of times you're birding with them because uh, it's very expensive to do a custom trip. Just my father alone with a, an ornithologist guide. 
So instead, you'll put together trips um, with established bird guiding companies that use local ornithologists who know where to find the birds. So it wouldn't be, even though there's only 10 to 15 big listers on Earth, it's not uncommon. In fact, on our trip to the Amazon, there were three big listers on the trip. And you can be sure that if my father was asleep in the boat and a bird came by, that he would not be allowed to claim it. Now, there have been a couple of people who clearly fudged their lists, um, claiming birds in parts of Kenya, for example, that just didn't occur, and claiming them in, in large numbers. And so those people are pretty much ostracized, they're banned, and, and you never mention their name again. So it is an honor system, but you're constantly being checked by your competitors, and you have to prove a level of skill and commitment at which point you are given the honor of being able to formulate your own list. Hmm. Um, most birders in that category would not lie about a bird because there's no point. They want to see the bird. And to, to say you saw it without seeing it would be like having a piece of cake in front of you that you wanted to eat and saying you ate it when you didn't. <laughs> you say fundamentally birding is a self-disciplining uh, activity. You, you also mentioned the fact that... that uh, that when someone chooses to be dishonest, if you fudge having seen a bird which you really didn't see, you say that it's so often the, the case that you'll get the science wrong and you will betray your dishonesty or reveal it to the world. Yeah, that's right. Um, to uh, you know, to I mean, this is not about claiming one bird that that uh, that you didn't see. It wouldn't make sense to just claim one in a lifetime of seven or eight thousand birds. The people who have been dishonest have claimed 50, 100 birds. And after a while, um, you realize that it's, it, it's not possible for the, them to have seen those birds on their own um, in a certain place. And, and, there, and there are a lot of holes in it, whether it's the description of the bird, the place you saw it, the season, uh, whether, the, whether the bird was, was known to exist in that area before. And, and so it's pretty easy to get caught when you're at the highest level if you're committing the kind of big fraud that would actually make a difference in, in where you stood in the competition. One term which comes up a lot is you uh, describe your, your father's own uh, birding and, and those of others is this thing called splitting. And it's interesting that something like that that uh, a lot of us have never even heard of would end up figuring very significantly in, in, in how one's list uh, is is compiled tell us a little bit about splitting well I, I for for most people who are listening to this um in the u.s uh splitting is when one bird is known if, if a bird is known as a single species and the ornithologists decide that it's actually uh, two or three or four or five species and the best example for that for people um listening to this would be the Baltimore Oriole, which has been split into three birds, the Baltimore Bullocks and Northern Oriole. And the criteria is usually behavior, um, habitat, uh, maybe coloration, often song. And the definition of species is that one, one species cannot successfully produce fertile offspring with another. And there's no way to really test that because splitting doesn't split populations that are in the same place. It would split uh, an oriole that was found south of the Mason-Dixon line or north, for example. But the scientists are pretty sure about that. 
Now, there's also something called lumping, when, when species that have been split are put together. And the Baltimore Oriole has been split and lumped over and over again as people debate that. So when a birder has 7,000 birds, um, a, well, one of the things you'll do even when you're at home is keep track of what's being split. And so if a bird that you've seen in both Brazil and Peru that was considered one is split into two and you've been in both habitats and seen the bird in both habitats, then you get to add a bird just from your armchair. Hmm. Uh, and you lose birds when they get lumped, but right now there's a lot more splitting going on than lumping. So you, you mentioned in, in your book at least a couple of, of occasions in which your father, for whatever reason, uh, was, was in a lull, uh, not actively out there birding and listing, and yet, you know, from the comfort of his armchair, uh, he was maybe able to actually enlarge his list just a little bit because of this different uh, splitting or I think at one point you talk about the term specia- speciation or something like that. That's right. And uh, and just from that, the list can change. Yeah, the list, the especially in the tropics where where birds are, there are many more birds um, species, and and they're they're let, not as well known, and so there's still a lot of discovery and thought going on. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of splitting, and like I said, splitting means that one species is actually considered decided to be two, and so. All big listers and a lot of birders keep track of the splits, and uh, some splits are announced in scientific papers, some are theorized by ornithologists in the field, and they've not published, um, but ultimately, there's a book called Checklist of Birds of the World, which comes out uh, every few years, and there are now supplements on the internet, and that's considered the ultimate arbiter. When a, when a bird is split in the checklist, then you can definitively go through that process and decide whether you're able to add another species based on the split to your, to your personal list. We've mentioned that your father belongs in a, in a very rare company as, as one of uh, the best big listers in the world, in fact, in the top ten of big listers. That list is made up mostly of men, but not entirely. And you write it at, at some length about uh, someone who, in, in, in many respects, for much of her life, uh, was the best of them all. Yeah, that that's, would be Phoebe Snetzinger, and she passed away uh, just, just before um, my initial article about my dad's 7,000 was published, and Phoebe was the best. There's no question about that, and everybody, even today, who is a big lister would admit that. There was, she went close to 8,500. Um, she was the only person at that point to see more than 8,000, and to surpass that by 500 is astounding. It's, it's, it's a, it is a geometric... Um, sort of improvement over what my dad did and all the 7,000 people. To get to that number requires literally millions of dollars, private trips, and it also requires an obsessional mind that even for someone as obsessed as my dad is, is far beyond. And Phoebe also gained a lot of respect, not just for being a woman, but for the hardships she went. She was a cancer survivor who decided to bird because uh, she was told she was not going to survive and thought, well, I'm going to do this instead of laying at home waiting to die. She was a, a superior um, bird person. In other words, she knew her birds um, better than a lot of people, and she actually discovered a few new species. So she was a, a powerhouse, and a, she remains a legend. And uh, her, she died on a birding trip in an accident, and well, I, I wouldn't say that's probably the way she wanted to go. Uh, it, was, it was typical. And to get those high numbers, you really have to get into some dangerous situations, so it wasn't entirely unexpected. Hmm. 
You tell us the story of another great lister, big lister, by the name of Peter Kestner. Uh, Peter Kestner. Yeah. Kestner. And he has gone about this pursuit in, in a very different way. Uh, tell our listeners about that, about how his pursuit has been actually fairly unique, it would seem, in, in the world of big listers. Yeah, Peter is, is, is different than everyone else, and I should say that uh, when my book came out, um, Peter was at about 79.50, and since then uh, he has surpassed 8,000. He did that in Egypt. And so he has become the second living person now to, to see more than 8,000. And Peter is the youngest of the big listers. He's in his early 50s, and he decided very early on that he was going to try and see every bird on Earth. But because he was young, because he didn't have the money, um, he decided the best way to do that would be to get a job that enabled him to travel to the places where the birds are. So he became a diplomat, and he's in the um, United States Diplomatic Corps. Um, he's a, he's, he has all sorts of jobs in different embassies at pretty high levels, and he chooses and asks for postings uh, in places where there are birds. So prior to Egypt, he was in Brazil, and this gives him several years in each posting to see the birds he wants to see. So he's done it at a much more well-spaced-out pace, you might say. People like my dad will go to Brazil for two weeks and try and see 150 birds. Peter will go on weekends and try and see six, but you add up all those weekends over three years and you build the numbers up. And uh, I had the, the pleasure of going with him to a very remote part of Amazonian Brazil and see three new birds with him, and it was, it was really exciting. Um, it's, a, it's a much more sort of intimate pursuit when you're just going for one or two and you're spending three or four days exploring um, the unknown, looking for it. Hmm. If we were to take your father's lists in hand of the 7,000-plus birds which uh, he has seen, uh, what would those lists look like? And does the appearance of the list change from, uh, from his earliest lists as, as a teenager uh, to, to more recent years? Well, I, I'm, I'm lucky enough to be looking at his lists right now, and uh, they did change. Um, when he was very young, he does what a lot of uh, sort of more amateur or, or beginning birders do. He, he checked off birds from local lists. Your local Audubon Society even now will offer a list. You can either download it or receive it of birds in your neighborhood. Some of the bird books to your region will have a list, and so he checked them off as well as keeping a notebook, that a small pad that... that listed his totals. Over the years, that turned into something very complex. He has a, a master list, his life list, which is a big, fat um, book. And then he's got, uh, in these folders that I'm looking at, one folder for every trip he's done, for every country. And uh, each of those folders contains his pre-trip notes, his list of expected birds, birds he wanted, um, where he saw them, how he saw them, and it lists the totals for each country. And those are then transcribed into the master list, which is listed by date, by, by place, and, uh, and then those lists are then reprocessed into the list that he keeps um, for the splits and the lumps. Hmm. You know, these days, a lot of birders are using computers for that. Right. You know, you're touching on some of the complexity of this, and I remember you saying at one point in your book that that was one thing your father grew to really love about all this, that, you know, for instance, you could consult a couple of different resources and maybe have be given some contrasting or conflicting uh, opinions on, on, on matters of, of speciation, for instance. But he said he loved the differences of opinion, the labyrinth of counting, the latitude it gave him to apply the expertise he was gaining as he studied. The more complex it got, the more he enjoyed it. 
Yeah, that's right. And uh, it's it's quite interesting the the sort of way you slice and dice your list, the way you manipulate it and keep it is is really I think one of the fascinating things about it. It's endlessly strategic. It is not just go see the bird and make a check mark in a book. It, it encompasses a lot more than that. And one of the interesting things is uh, with those splits and lumps um, is you'll be with the two big listers, and one will say, well, are you going to count this split? And one will say no, and one will say yes, or one will say I'll wait until it comes out in this journal. And if you're at that level, it's up to you whether you count it or not. Um, if, if it's a legitimate scientific disagreement and there's arguments on both sides, then you can decide whether to, whether to count it or not. Um, of course, once the definitive um, split or lump is, is confirmed, then you have to revise your list up or down. Um, and so it's, it really is requires a lot of research, a lot of knowledge, a lot of understanding, and I think that's one of the most fun things for people is, is the, the splitting and, and slicing of, of the different in- pieces of information you have. Hmm. You do quote your mom at one point in sort of, you know, trying to make sense of your, your father's obsession, uh, uh, you quote her saying, what struck me about his bird watching was the list. I never understood that. It seemed like he didn't appreciate their beauty. Can you help us in our last minute or so understand, I mean, how much does your dad look at an indigo bunting and, and appreciate its beauty um, versus just making it one more check on a list? Um, Help us understand that part of this. Well, I think there are some birds that he does think are cool or interesting. But the thing I would say is that the big list is a lifetime pursuit. And to me, I understand that there's something really beautiful in that, in knowing what you want to do and devoting every fiber of your being to it. And so there is an inherent and self-generated beauty that, that to me really overshadows any one bird, no matter how amazing it is. It's, it's, it's life's work, and to complete one's life's work is uh, an amazing and, and gorgeous thing. Hmm. You talk about being able to relate to the chase, which was part of this for your father. And you also say early in the book, in another line, which I absolutely love, nobody can count everything, but you can try. That's right. And people uh, who try and, and get that high are just uh, amazing to me. I admire my dad for that. The book, again, is called To See Every Bird on Earth, A Father, a Son, and a Lifelong Obsession, published by Plume, the author, Dan Capel. Dan Capel, I love this book, and it was so interesting on so many different levels, and I know many people will find it so, and I'm very glad that we got to have this nice, long, thorough conversation about your wonderful book. Best wishes to you and to your father. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. That was a great interview. I, I really appreciate it. You're welcome.